And so this evening what I would like to do is to give you an introduction to uh, this book, to work through uh, some of the issues, to give you an idea of the big picture before we dive next week into chapter 1 and look specifically at the text. So as we think about the big picture of Esther, I'd ask you to consider the following questions. What do you do when problems come to you? What do you do when times of trouble are there or on the horizon? As you look out and you hear rumblings of layoffs in your company. Or as you are going to get a medical checkup from something that you hope has cleared itself up from a few months ago. Or as you prepare to deal with issues in your family that you know have come to a head. Where do you go? What do you look for? Where is your hope? And by that I don't just mean in some sort of vague way that we hope in God. But I mean, where do you expect to see concrete answers and actions come from? If your hope and trust is in the Lord, where do you and how do you expect to see the Lord work? If you had situations like that, perhaps you also know the situation of being uh, concerned, saddened, depressed, by not seeing God move in your life, perhaps as you would wish Him to. By God not being as present, as active, as forceful as you think the God of the Bible should be. I mean, after all, why no fire from heaven on Mount Carmel? Why no armies being blinded? Why no all of these spectacular things that we see in First and Second Kings? If you've had that experience, then I think the perfect prescription for you is two doses of Esther and call me in the morning. Why? Because the story of Esther is a wonderful story in which, surprisingly, Esther and the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon, are the only two books in the Bible in which God is not mentioned. When you get a chance tonight, kids, go home and look through the book of Esther. You could probably read the whole book in about a half an hour. See if you could find the word God or the Lord. And if you do, you come up and correct me. So you search hard. But you won't find God present, obvious at Esther. But that doesn't mean he's not there. And so what I would like us to see this evening, first I'd like us to look at the basic story of Esther. To run through the story, to familiarize ourselves with what's going on. This is reading the spoiler before you watch the movie. This is reading the last chapter of the book before you go and go through specifically chapter by chapter. And then I'd like us to look at the circumstances that Esther is in. We'll hear her story, and then we'll look at her circumstances. And then finally, we will look at the God of Esther. So her story, her circumstances, and then her God. Well, let's 
start by thinking about what is happening here in the story of Esther. First, let me put it in context for you if I could. It would be helpful if I could get a few helpers. Come on up. Make sure everybody has one. There you go. This is a map of the Bible world in the 5th century B.C. Our story takes place in about the 480s. 486, we think. 486, 483 B.C. And as you can see in this map, there is a big, huge green blob. Who sees the green blob? All right. That is the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire is the empire that took over the Babylonians. You know, the Babylonians is is that strong and powerful and mighty empire that we looked at, attacked Judah in the days of Habakkuk. And we will see in weeks to come, we'll wipe out Judah in 2 Kings. The Babylonians were that mighty empire that wiped out the Assyrians who took Israel off this morning, we saw. And the Assyrians were that mighty empire that wiped out the Syrians and took Israel out. And so you can see this is the way in which the world works. If we were to put fast forward a little bit more in our story, we would see in perhaps a century and a half, the Persians will be wiped out by Alexander the Great in the Greek Empire, who in turn, in about a century and a half, will be wiped out by the Romans. This is the way the world works. But as you can see, the Persian Empire stretches everywhere in the known Bible world. They control Egypt. They control all of the Holy Land. They control the area of Babylon, Babylonia. They control Media the old Mede Empire. They control Parthia, the old Parthian Empire. They control areas of Afghanistan, India, Iran, even areas of Greece. This is a very powerful empire. And their emperor or king is a man by the name of Xerxes. Some of you may know him from Western civilization classes. He was the king who attacked Greece. This is the famous king who built a bridge from Turkey or Asia Minor, to Greece, and when it was destroyed by the weather, ordered that the ocean, the strait, be given 30 lashes. So you can imagine the foolishness of his servant who wanted to keep his head and went out with a whip and whipped the water 300 times. This is a man who had great power, who was not used to being resisted. And in the empire of Persia, the king's word was law. Very different than what we've seen in Israel and Judah, where they were bound by written law that God had laid down. One of the things we're going to see in the book of Esther is, you might hope that Xerxes isn't in a bad mood, because whatever he says goes. Biblically, the context of what we're looking at is, Esther, even though it comes after these two books, is happening right between Ezra and Nehemiah. Right between the first group of return and construction and the second group and the solidity. 
So this is happening at a time in which, even though Israel is in exile, many Israelites have gone back to the promised land. So this is the context, the broader forest for our story. And it's a short book. It's only ten chapters. And the tenth chapter is only three verses. But it begins in chapter one with a party. A party to end all parties. A six-month party in which couches made of gold are laid out. And in which there is actually a decree that says anyone can drink as much as they want to drink. Wine is flowing and food is there. And it's actually, if we can think about it, it's the uh, probably the most expensive and famous stag party ever. Because... One of the things we'll notice from chapter 1 is the men are having their party and the queen is having the ladies' party, which I imagine is probably a bit more refined. Probably something like the difference between a men's breakfast and the mother-daughter brunch. The men's breakfast doesn't exactly worry about which fork to use. You hope that everyone's using a fork. (laughs) So you can imagine, you know, this is going on. And the king of... The king of uh, Persia gets it in his mind that he's going to bring out his trophy wife and show her off. And she does something that catches him a bit by surprise. She says no. And it's interesting because the laws of the Medes and the Persians can't be changed. We're going to learn that. But I guess they could be refused because she says no. And the king doesn't know what to do with it. And he actually turns and he says, do we have some kind of law we can use here? And they sit down and they think together and they think, I know what we'll do. We'll pass a law that every woman has to obey her husband. Let's do that. And they put it out of the postal service and it goes out throughout the land that that is the law. And as everyone knows, that means that at that instant, every lady does everything her husband says, right? No. You may be able to legislate some morality, but you can't legislate That kind of behavior. Well, what happens, though, in the midst of this circumstance is that the king needs a new queen. And so he does what any good king of that time would be. He says, find me all the prettiest ladies and I'll pick a good one. And it just so happens that the pretty lady that he takes a fancy to is Esther. Esther's not her real name. Her real name is... Where is it here that I have it? I had lost it. Um, Hada, I believe. And she is um, a Hebrew. She is, oh, Hadassah, excuse me, Hadassah. I thought I had it in my notes. Verse 7 of chapter 2. She is called Esther in the language of the kingdom, which is related to the word for star. So she is a star, as it were. And she is chosen as the queen. And she goes into the palace. And then, at the end of chapter 2, we see an interesting circumstance in which something that happens in these kind of kingdoms, so people get mad at the king, and they decide to bump him off. We've seen that before in Israel, haven't we? And so there are two men who are angry at the king, and they're a little too free with their tongues, and Mordecai, the Jew, finds out about this. He just happens to be in the right place at the right time to hear this. And if you can believe it, Mordecai, the Jew looks out for the emperor of Persia. And he sends word and he says, there's a plot here. 
And so they send the Persian equivalent of Colombo or um, Dragnet, and they go out and they, they round up the usual suspects and they say, this is true. And someone says, that was a wonderful thing that Mordecai did. Write that down. And they do. They just happen to write it down. And then what happens is Mordecai is want to sit by the gate here in chapter 3, and a man named Haman is being honored by the king. And he just happens to walk by Mordecai, who we don't really even know why, the text doesn't tell us, refuses, just happens to refuse to honor Haman. We don't really know if it's a good reason or not, because it's not that the king was requiring some kind of worship. It was kind of like a tip of the hat thing, or a yes sir. But Mordecai steadfastly refuses to do this. Odd behavior. We wonder why this is the case. But we do know that what happens from that is that Haman becomes angry. He hates Mordecai, and he plots to kill Mordecai and every one of Mordecai's people, the Jews. And he goes to the king, and the king says, well, that's fine with me. You want to wipe out those people? Go right ahead. The king just happens to not know that Esther is a Jew. There's a lot of just happenings, aren't there? And then what happens is Esther is told by Mordecai that you must use your position. You must speak to the king and save your people. And she gathers up the courage after Mordecai presses her. And she goes to the king and the king just happens to give her favor. He hasn't even heard her case yet. You see, to come into the presence of the king unsummoned is a death sentence, unless the king extends his scepter and says, I'll talk to you. And he just happens to do that. And the king just happens to give favor to Esther. And he says, what would you like me to give you? And she says something that seems even odder. She says, I would like you to throw a banquet for Haman so that he could be here. And again, we're puzzled by what goes on. And then Haman, as he is out and about, coming, getting ready for his banquet, he just happens to go by Mordecai one last time and just happens to get so angry that he mentions it to his wife and his buddies. And they say, well, build a hangman's gallows. And he says, that's a great idea. And while he's building it, the king just happens to have a case of indigestion and can't sleep at all. And he just happens to call for a book And it just happens to be the book that says that Mordecai saved his life. And this just happens the night before Haman is to be in his presence. Well, Esther prepares the banquet and Haman comes. And Haman is ready to hang Mordecai. And Esther then has the opportunity, it just so happens to reveal the plot right when Haman is there and the king is there. And the king is furious and he runs off. And Haman is not exactly a bright man. He doesn't run for the hills. He instead decides to plead with Esther, which looks like he's trying to attack her. And they say, the king says, what can I do with this guy? And someone says, there's a gallows over there that he built. There just happens to be one. Why don't you hang him? And he says, good show. Let's do that. And so Haman is taken out of the picture. And then Esther comes to the king and says, you don't realize what he wanted to do. There's this decree that's been put forward. It's going to kill all the Jews, including me. And the king has that opportunity. And he relents by 
publishing another decree. And that gives the Jews an opportunity to attack and destroy their enemies. And all of this happens and there is no prophet. There was no bolt of lightning. There was no Red Sea that parts. It's just a series of circumstances in which these things happen. Think about that for just a moment. That's the story of Esther in a nutshell. But let's think about the circumstances of Esther. Because really, if we think about it, Esther is living in a dangerous and an unstable world. And she could be faced with two options. The first question we might ask ourselves if we were Esther is, do we try and blend in? Do we fly under the radar? Do we do as much as we can to seem like Persians so that we can avoid the old Japanese proverb, right? It's the nail that is up that gets struck. We want to be flush with the wood. Let's try and be as low as possible. I mean, after all, all of the hardcore believers are already gone. They're rebuilding the city. They're off. All of the people who were really gung-ho for the Lord, they're off on not the mission field. They're back off on home turf. And if we were to think about it, exile right now is relatively comfortable. I mean, Haman's plot notwithstanding, a Jew is actually the queen. And Mordecai is doing pretty well for himself. This is a wealthy empire, and this is the capital of the empire. It might be very good to just sit and hope the 401k rises and hope we fly under the radar. If we think about it, that's not a 5th century B.C. challenge. That is a 2009 challenge, isn't it? To fly under the radar, to avoid all difficulties, to blend in, to be gray. Right? Don't wear eye-popping colors. Don't call attention to yourself. Don't let people know that you might be a troublemaking believer. You might be one of these Bible thumpers. You might be someone that could cause difficulty if something comes up. That's a challenge that's faced by Esther. But there's another challenge that she could be facing. It comes to those who often don't try and blend in. And that's the question we might ask ourselves. Do we give up? We can't blend in. Let's give up. That of despair. How do we fight a big empire? Look at, look at the size of this empire. Look at all of the empires they've defeated. We're this little people, this ragtag group that's been dragged out of the Holy Land. And we're not even all united. Half of us are building walls in Jerusalem. How do we possibly fight these giants? It's kind of same feeling that the spies had when they were getting ready to go into Canaan. How do we fight the giants? But there's something interesting about this Persian Empire. As we go through, we'll see that the king makes a law. And then he sends it off on the Pony Express. And it goes all over. They scurry all over the place and they say what they do. And one of the things we'll notice is they have a law about everything. Remember I told you about the drinking? They actually have to have a law that says there is no compulsion to drink because presumably they have a rule about how much you're supposed to drink at a party. There's a rule about just about everything here. And the irony with that is is that the more rules you have and the more supposed power there is, really, the less power there is. You see, king 
Ahasuerus, Xerxes, is so powerful that some little bureaucrat can walk up and say, you can't do that, sire. It's in the law of the Medes and the Persians, and you can't change it. Volume 3, page 462, paragraph 8. Oh, I thought I could do that. Well, what can I do? You can just imagine, you dredge that up in your mind. All of these mindless drones bureaucrats, all of these middlemen, the middlemen have middlemen. Does that remind you of anything? <laughs> now, I want you to seriously think about that the next time fear of the federal government strikes your heart. I don't want you to think of giant boogeymen. I want you to think of the undersecretary to the undersecretary to the undersecretary of the secretary. Because that's the reality of the world we live in. You see, it's one thing to seem all-powerful. It's another thing to be all-powerful, even in this situation. There's also, if I might say, as an aside, a lesson to us. And that one of the great difficulties that the king faces and the empire faces is they try to control every single little detail of life. And so as a result, they wind up controlling nothing. There's a lesson in that to pastors and elders and dads and moms and brothers and sisters that think they are dads and moms. You can't control every detail of life. If you try to, you wind up controlling nothing. It doesn't mean you give up control. No, not at all. But you can't control every detail of life. This is the circumstance that Esther finds herself in, in a dangerous and an unstable world. So what would we do if we were Esther? Well, if we were to think about a proper response, I would put two things in front of you. The first is, do not take the world too seriously. That would be the advice, I think, of Esther and Mordecai. You see, the king thinks this six-month party is the most serious thing since a heart attack. How could you possibly be involved with anything but my party with my cups and my golden couches and my, and my feast and bring me, bring me the queen? That's a bit like our society too, isn't it? You can't get out of the grocery store without being bombarded by magazines telling you how critically important it is that that soap opera star lost six pounds. Or can you believe what she wore to that red carpet event? And there are people that run their lives by this. It isn't just that either. Does it really make a significant difference in your family? Whether Manny Ramirez signs with Los Angeles or San Francisco or he hits 32 home runs or 33 home runs. Does it really matter in the final analysis? And yet we act as if it does. It consumes us. It goes beyond something that we are involved with, but it consumes us. It can happen too to kids. When we're more concerned about what football cards we have, or what Legos we have, or what DVD we have, instead of pursuing the things of God, instead of pursuing relationships. So don't take the world too seriously. It wants you to. That's a good response for the believer. The second thing the believer can do is wait and see God at work. One of the things we're going to see from the book of Esther is just because you don't see God doesn't mean He's not there and He's not at work. He is. 
That's hard to take sometimes, isn't it? You think you're out there on your own. Nobody's there to help you. That you're pushing and nobody else is pulling and helping. You're the only one out there. Often it's only hindsight that shows us that God's at work. You see, at the end of the book of Esther, Lord willing, we'll see all of the places where God has been and He has been at work. And I'm sure you have stories like that as well, in which you see God working in your children as they just happen to make friends with a certain person or just happen to go to a certain school or just happen to meet a certain spouse or just happen to buy a certain house in a certain place. You see, these things are easy to see in hindsight. And the challenge is, before we get to hindsight, is to trust that God is there and He is at work now. Even when we can't see Him. Well, just rush on to a conclusion here. We've seen the story of Esther. We've seen her circumstances. And let's look very briefly at the God of Esther. We've talked about God being at work. How is God at work? Who is the real deliverer in this story? The Jews are saved. Well, Xerxes passes the law that allows the Jews to defeat their enemies. So we might say in some sense, Xerxes is the deliverer. He passes the law, the regulation that saves the people. There's only one problem. He was the one that passed the edict of death to start with. So at best, he's a zero-sum gain. He's canceling out his own evil. What about Mordecai? It's his kindness to his family, becoming a foster adopted father to Esther, that allows him to influence her to be the queen. It's his work and loyalty to the king that gives the opportunity for the king to see it written in the Chronicles. He's also a man who has a a good plan. He says to Esther... Don't tell him you're a Jew. Let's save that one in our back pocket. We never know when we might need it. But if we think about it, some of Mordecai's planning is part of the problem. Maybe if he had told Esther to tell the king immediately that she was a Jew, he would have said, well, I've made this stupid edict that kills all the Jews. I don't want to kill you. Maybe we would never get there. Maybe if he would have perhaps not been so proud and willing to tip his hat to an official, the edict would have never been given to start with. We don't know. Not a bad man, but I don't think he deserves the name of deliverer either. What about Esther? God certainly uses her. He uses her beauty. He even uses the fact that she's an orphan to place her in Mordecai's care. He uses her bravery. Yet at the same time, She's not really the real deliverer either. What I want us to see is the real deliverer here is God. That God is behind all of these just if. And it sort of happened. God is behind every if in this book. God is the deliverer and we see the the power of providence And if we are honest with ourselves, we struggle with the invisibility of God, don't we? We struggle with thoughts like this. All I wanted to do was to have a good Christian marriage and raise good children and have opportunities to tell people about Jesus and to live in peace. Why can't God give me that? Why do I have these struggles? Why do I have these difficulties? Where is God? Why am I bouncing around from city to city? 
Why are my kids a thousand miles away? Why do I have these struggles? Where are you, God? Do you just not care? You see, those times, God can seem invisible. And we need to remember another little proverb, that large doors swing on small hinges. And God works through the small things in our life. I was just telling uh, someone this morning that I had my whole life figured out as I was at two points at least. One was I was absolutely sure I was going to go to law school and there was no reason why I couldn't go to the University of Chicago. I was living there. I had friends there. It's a great school. I had an in and I didn't get an answer. I couldn't get a yes. couldn't get a no. I did get an answer from the University of Michigan. And I got to a point where the deadline was about to pass and I couldn't get an answer. And so I said, well, I guess I have to go to Michigan. And I did that. And I was at Michigan where I wound up being in law school, wound up going to Buffalo, wound up meeting a young lady. We decided to get married and we were completely convinced that we were going to live in Buffalo. It made every sense in the world. And I had many conversations where I said, when we do this and we'll do this and we'll do that. And I was reminded, you know, that hasn't happened yet. You ought not to just assume it's going to happen. Oh, come on. That's ridiculous. I'm a graduate of University of Michigan Law School. This is top five in the nation. This is Buffalo. They should hope that I go to work for them. Come on. And you know what happened? I didn't get an answer. I didn't get a no. Didn't get a yes. Didn't get an answer. Then a deadline approaches. This law firm in Cleveland wants me to come there, but I don't know anybody in Cleveland. What happens? I wind up in Cleveland. What happens from there? Well, we have to look for a house. Where do we look for a house? The only people we know in Cleveland are parents of one of Deb's friends. They happen to live in a town called Hudson. But it happens to be a PCA church. We just happen to buy a house near this area. We just happen to wind up being frustrated and going to church there. We just happen to show up there. Fast forward nine years. And we're here. Big doors swing on small hinges. The only difference is I don't know your story. But you could get up here and tell it, couldn't you? God at work in the background. This is what we're going to see as we go through the book of Esther. And I want you to be interested and excited about watching God at work when he's not obvious. Because I hope and pray that that will allow you to see his work in your life where he's not obvious. To see that God cares about his people. That he punishes his enemies and his people's enemies. To paraphrase our shorter catechism. And he delivers his people. Let's pray.